Let me uh, pray for us uh, as we look at this portion of the scriptures. Gracious God, we do thank you that you both reveal and you speak in and through your word. We do pray and ask as we open up uh, the Bible this Lord's Day, uh, the Sunday before Christmas, that you might be so gracious as to not just help us understand this sober passage, but you might be the God who brings us to a place and a posture of hope uh, as we anchor in the good news of the Lord Jesus. We do ask that this morning in his name. Amen. As I said last week, uh, chapters 4 and chapter 5 of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, it's Paul's instructions to Christian men and women on how they should live in light of the good news of Jesus. Uh, And the logic of the passage is that if you are a Christian, this is how you would respond uh, to the saving work of Jesus. Jesus having saved you, the logic being, if Jesus has saved you, the assumption is you would now listen to his word. Uh, You would respond basically to his promises. You would actually walk uh, in obedience with him. Uh, You would anchor your life on his promises. That's the logic. Now, in our passage today, what's going to happen is Paul is going to look at the return of Jesus and what that actually means for the Christian life. Uh, And here, I want to say to you, the good news of the Bible is not just the story of Jesus coming to save us from our sin. Uh, The birth of Jesus we celebrate at Christmas, his death and resurrection at Easter, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Okay, so often that's where we stop in the Christian life. But the good news is good news because... He comes back. The story of the return of the king who repairs and reverses and restores everything broken in our lives and our world. Uh, That's what makes it good news. It's not much use if Jesus saves us from our sin, but there's no end game. You know, it's not much use if there's no end game where wrongs are made right, where good triumphs over evil, where suffering and and is removed forever, where evil is finally crushed, where justice and peace reigns forever. Uh, you know, Dan asked me whether I would reference the Avengers, and I said, yeah, I would reference the Avengers, because it's not much use if you didn't have Avengers Endgame. Because if you didn't have Avengers Endgame, it means evil has triumphed. It means justice will never actually take place. Death is the end. Well, Christian people actually believe that there is an Endgame, where Jesus returns, And he repairs and he reverses and he restores everything broken in our lives and our world. Now, I do want to say this. If you're not a Christian or you're a visitor in our church, you can certainly imagine an end game where good finally triumphs over evil, where suffering ends, where evil is crushed, where justice and peace rules forever. It's what every heart desires, whether they are Christian or not. And it's a desire that's actually echoed in every culture because every culture wants good to triumph ultimately over evil. Now, knowing the end game is actually meant to encourage us in the present. That's what Paul is doing here. So if you have your Bibles, Paul's purpose is to encourage us, to lift us up. Okay? And so if you have your Bibles, look at verse 18 and uh, chapter 4, verse 18 and chapter 5, verse 11. Notice he repeats himself, doesn't he? He says, therefore, encourage one another. Notice that Paul tells the Thessalonians to encourage one another with these truths, okay? Uh, which, which is mean these are truths we are meant to actually speak to each other. And he applies it in two areas, grieving over believers who have died 
and how to live not knowing when the end game is going to take place. Okay? Dealing with death in the church community, how to live not knowing when Jesus will return. Okay? So we're going to look at each one in turn. Uh, there is an outline. You might want to follow along with the outline because I'm going to point out a few things. Here's the first one, verse 13 to verse 18 of chapter 4. Uh, how does the end game shape the way Christian people grieve over believers who have died? Now, we don't know what exactly has happened in the church community, right, in the Thessalonian church, but we do know this. It appears that death has visited this church community. Death has suddenly claimed the lives of people in this church community. And, and it appears that they were unprepared for grief, for the experience of grief and loss, okay? Even Christian people, and he, it's important for us to understand this, even Christian people like us, we are not immune to grief, to death, to pain, to suffering, and the loss of people we love. Now, it's there in verse 13. If you look with me in verse 13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve with like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And so it's no surprise that there would have been questions like, what will happen to the dead in Christ? What's happened to my brother or my sister in the church who's died? Where are they now? Will we see them again? Okay? Now, I'm going to highlight four things and, and then work through those things with you. Right? So here's the first thing I want to say. Christian people believe that death is not permanent for those who have died. There is life beyond the grave. That's what Christian people actually believe, which is why death in this passage is described as sleep. You see there? Because sleep is always followed by a waking up, right? So death is actually followed by a resurrection. So look at verse 13, those who sleep in death. Verse 14, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Verse 15, those who have died are described as having fallen asleep. Now, that's how the Old Testament people view death as well. So it's not just a New Testament thing, it's an Old Testament thing. So uh, in Daniel chapter two, uh, 12, verse 2, we read, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Or in John chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus spoke of death as being asleep. When he came to the tomb of Lazarus, whom he loved, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. Okay, so that's the first thing. Number two, Christian people grieve over death. They do, but they do so with hope. Christian people believe it's, it's right and it's okay to grieve over death. Verse 13, Paul doesn't say, don't grieve. He says, grieve. But don't grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. The reason why Christian people can grieve with hope comes in verse 15 and verse 16. Here's the third thing. <clears throat> Christian people believe that because Jesus died and rose from the dead, those who have died trusting Jesus will rise when he returns. That's verse 15, verse 16. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 16. When the Lord Jesus comes, the dead in Christ will rise. Okay? But there's a fourth thing. And so Christian people believe that those who are alive trusting Jesus and those who have died trusting Jesus will finally be together. They'll finally meet again when Jesus returns. And that's verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the end. So we will be with the Lord forever. 
And so there's four things there, okay? Four things. Death is not the end for Christians. We grieve with hope because Jesus has risen over death. If Christ has risen over death, then those who trust him will rise again. And when Jesus returns, those who have died trusting him will rise and they will be reunited together forever. Well, that's actually the Christian endgame. Okay, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Four points. Now, not everyone believes that. Okay, so I'm going to say that not everyone in our world believes that. Now, the secular worldview of death is very different. Okay, so consider with me the secular vision of death. Most of you have heard me say this before. The secular's take on death is that it is natural. You're born, you live, you die. And after that, there's nothing. Not too different from uh, the philosophers in the Greek-speaking world. Theocritus, uh, the Greek poet, reflected on death in, or the, and the absence of hope 300 years before Jesus. He said, hope are for the living, and the dead are without hope. Right? Uh, the, both Greek and Latin inscriptions have been found that read, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. And, and so basically the secular end game is that when you die, that's it. You're not, you don't know if there's anything beyond. And, you, and certainly if you're a materialist or someone who believes in the natural world, there is nothing beyond. Now, I do want to say this, right? Even if you're a secular person, it doesn't mean that you don't have hope or comfort in death. Okay? That's important to remember. Even if you were a secular person, it doesn't mean that you have no hope or comfort in death. Uh, I read this week in the Harvard Divinity Bulletin uh, an article uh, on a researcher doing human research. Uh, he interviewed about 97 elderly secular people, elderly non-religious people. And one of the questions he asked them is where they look to find hope and comfort in death. Very interesting in her research, which actually reveals that secular people do have hope and comfort in death. Just different from Christians. Okay? Uh, and he tells the story of Agnes. One of the interview, uh, interviewees was, a, I think, an a, a 87-year-old woman called Agnes. Uh, she had lost her husband to cancer. She was living in the nursing home. And this is what uh, he writes. Agnes draws meaning from her scientific training to articulate an explanation of her place in the universe that she believes is both rational and moral. And so for Agnes, who is a science teacher, the world just is. Uh, And so she says, hurricanes, tornadoes, the family you were born into, all kinds of things are random and they can wreak havoc with us and we have absolutely no control over it. The only thing we can control, she says, is our reaction to those things, the bad things that happen in the world because nature isn't fair. And I thought, oh, that's consistent with the natural materialistic worldview. Because for, for Agnes, from a materialistic framework, from a secular framework, what you see is what you get. We live in a material world, a, me- a, a mechanistic universe without design or purpose apart from what purpose and meaning you give it. That's Richard Dawkins, right? Uh, atheist, philo- uh, atheist biologist. And so death is the end of individual existence and consciousness. When you die, you die. So Agnes says, you know, when we die, our bodies are recycled. It nourishes our future plant life. Uh, Life under the sun is actually a circle. You're born, you die, you're buried. You fertilize the ground, the grass grows, eaten by the cattle, and eventually the cycle repeats itself. In Agnes' words... We are composed of our physicality and our energy, 
like with anything else on this planet that dies, our atoms and energy are recycled back into the universe. If we have children, our genes live on in them. And Agnes actually loves watching her two grandsons when they visit her. She, she says, I'm just amazed how much energy he has. He's so much like Sean, her son. And our legacy is the impact we have on others through caring for friends or family or by political organizing. And so this is what I realized, okay, when I read this article, this research article. Secular people have comfort and hope too. That's, secular people can find hope and comfort in death by creating their own purpose and meaning and hope. Uh, They can hope that their genes will live on in their children. They can hope in knowing, in in, in hoping that the good they've done in this life will somehow continue on. But Christian hope is very different, isn't it? It's incredibly different. It says death is not the end because Jesus who died and rose over death means that death is not the end. It means that there can be a resurrection for those who have died trusting Jesus. It means that life lost can actually be returned to you. Love taken from you can be restored. It means we can be together again. Now, Agnes might not believe that, and she certainly does not believe that. And you may not too. You may have family and friends who do not believe that. But if you pressed a bit deeper, and so let's press a bit deeper, Which would you prefer? It's worth asking, isn't it? Which would you prefer? Which echoes the real desire of our hearts? Agnes's hearts. Knowing that life and love could be returned to her, or the prospect of nothingness and the hope that maybe, just maybe, her contribution in life will continue in some way. Let me show you something really interesting I've observed going to funerals. It's interesting, you know, that when I've attended the funeral of people who are secular or people who are non-religious, friends and family, they always say things like, John or Auntie Sarah is in a better place. It's really interesting for me to hear those things in eulogies, uh, especially secular and non-religious ones. But, you know, Auntie Sarah is in a better place. But I don't think they really mean that because... They don't really believe in an afterlife. But I do think that when secular people speak of a better place for their loved ones who have died, it's because whether we are religious or not, we all want the assurance that the people we love who die are actually in a better place. It's the desire of every heart. You know, I have never been to a funeral where someone actually says, Auntie Sarah is now gone forever, Her consciousness has been extinguished. Her body will soon be recycled to nourish the earth. She's in a better place now. Now, I'm not actually meaning to be trite, but I've never heard that. And how is that a better place? Often you hear someone say, Auntie Sarah is now in a better place. May she rest in peace. It's because we want those we love to be in a better place. Nothingness might be what we think happens at death. But our hearts certainly believe and hope for more at death, a better place. And so I've realized that even secular and non-religious people, they look for comfort and hope in death by imagining that there is something better ahead for those who have died. And so the secular actually wishes there was, but doesn't believe there is. Or maybe you could be like Agnes, right? 
who at the very least is consistent enough to acknowledge that as a secular person, there's nothing beyond death. But she looked for comfort and hope in death, in her genes continuing through her children, uh, in her good works in life somehow uh, continuing in, uh, and contributing in culture and society. And so where does the secular look for hope in the face of death? How does the secular find comfort and hope in the, in the face of death? Well, I think there are two options if you're a secular person. Number one is you can imagine that there is a better place even though you don't believe in the afterlife. Okay, So you can imagine that. And some people actually do do that. But there is a second option. You can actually recognize that there is nothing after death. No possibility of life or love returned to you. And so you have to create your own hope. And you create your own hope, your own meaning. You hope you'll live on in your kids. You hope that the work you leave behind will somehow contribute. Okay? And so secular people can have comfort and hope, even in the face of death. But it's different. Because Christian hope is very different, isn't it? It says death is not the end, it's sleep. It says if Jesus died and rose over death, there can be a resurrection for those who've died trusting him. It says life and love can be restored and returned to you. And so look at verse 14. Right? For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring Jesus with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It says there will be a day when we will be together again. A day when Christ comes to enact the end game. And those who are alive and those who have died trusting Jesus will be together again. Now, that's actually the hope of the Christian end game. <coughs> uh, in 1907, uh, a second century papyri was discovered. Uh, you know, written 200 years uh, after Jesus. It was discovered there was a letter of consolation you know one of those notes people write, uh, letters of, um, to comfort people who have lost loved ones? Uh, it was written by an Egyptian lady called Irene uh, to a grieving couple whose son had died. Okay? So we've got all these things you find in antiquity, which gives you an indicator of how people understood death and hope. And this is what Irene wrote to the couple. She wrote, I am as sorry and weep over the departed one as I wept for Didymus. Uh, Didymus was probably Irene's son who had died at some point as well. And then she writes, but nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort ye one another. And so in this letter, this papyri, which was discovered uh, 200 years after Jesus, Irene says, I'm so sorry about the death of your son. And she weeps over her friend's loss as she herself has wept over the loss of her son. Didymus, and she and her family have done everything they can, perhaps funeral prayers, you know, offerings. But then she writes, but nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. Farewell. Okay. Now, this gives you an idea of how the, the Roman world viewed death and hope, how they dealt with the death of those they loved. Now, that is a huge contrast to Paul's comfort one another, Right? Uh, encourage one. And notice what he says, right, in verse 18. Notice how encourage one another, verse 18, is built on what? These words. Have a look at verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these truths. Grieve with hope. Death is not the end 
for those who have died trusting Jesus. Death is temporary because Jesus rose over death. They will rise again. And when Jesus returns, we will be together again. You see, the Christian hope is more than the expectation that the king will return. It's also the belief that when he comes, the dead in Christ will rise, they will come with him, and the Christian living will join him, and they will be together again. The story ends with love restored, life returned together forever. That's worth remembering. The story ends with love restored, life returned together forever. Here's the thing, isn't it? Today, even if you did not believe that, it's the ending everyone wants. It's the longing of every heart, Christian or not, because we don't want death to be the end. We want love returned to us. We want life returned to us. That's the deepest longings of our heart in the face of death, for life and love returned to us. Christian hope actually answers the deepest longings of every heart in every culture, religious or non-religious. But Paul doesn't stop there. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 1 to verse 11 with me. Because Paul also wants to encourage the Thessalonians to live in a certain way in light of the return of Jesus. Now here's the thing, isn't it? If you knew the future, if you knew the end game, it would change the way you live today. Our vision of the future always changes how we live in the present. And if the story of the Bible is not just the story of Jesus coming to save us from our sin, but Jesus actually coming back to repair and to reverse and restore everything broken in our lives and our world, then it would, it would change the way we live today. So here are four things I'm going to highlight. Verse 1 to verse 11. Here's number one. The Christian view of the future is that there'll be a day, a final day of salvation and justice. Salvation and justice when Jesus returns. Paul calls this the day of the Lord. Okay? So it's there in verse 2. Have a look at verse 2. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come. That little phrase, the day of the Lord, is the Bible's way of speaking of a final day when God actually comes to save completely, to repair, to restore, uh, to reverse brokenness in our lives and our world. But in doing that, he also comes to enact justice. Because you must enact justice to repair, restore, uh, and to reverse all the brokenness in our lives and our world. And the day of the Lord is the day when God comes to execute salvation and justice. A day when wrongs are made right. A day when good finally triumphs over evil. A day when wickedness is crushed forever. A day when pain and suffering is removed forever. A day when justice and peace reigns. Christian people believe that history is moving towards a day of salvation and justice. In fact, if you pause and thought with me for a moment, there cannot be salvation without justice, can they? There cannot be true salvation if wrongs are not made right, if suffering is not removed, if the wicked are not called to account, which is why Paul speaks of this not just as a day of salvation, but notice verse 3, a day of destruction. No one escapes God's justice. Come down to verse 9. Notice that the day of the Lord, the return of the king, is a day of wrath and a day of salvation. Okay? Now, often we think wrath is a bad thing, isn't it? But wrath is not a bad thing when it is rightly directed. Is it right for us to be angry when we see the poor taken advantage of? It is. Is it right to be angry when we see evil get away unpunished? It is. Is it right to be angry when we see unjust suffering? It is. 
And so the wrath of God is the right anger of God directed at injustice, at wickedness, at wrong, at suffering. And so the Christian view of the future is that there will actually be a day of final salvation and justice when Jesus returns. Now, as an aside, can I say this? If there is a final day of salvation and justice, right? if, if there is one, it's the reason why Christian people should be people of justice. Right? As an aside, let me say that. It's because we anticipate a day of justice. It's the reason why we work to see justice enacted. Even if we don't see it fully carried out now, even if the wicked escape, even if evil gets away unpunished, our work for justice will not be wasted. It will not be in vain because there will be a day of justice. That's the reason why Christian people need to be people of justice. In fact, author Tim Keller, he raises the question of why bother with justice if at the end there is nothing, right? So if at the end there is nothing, why bother with justice? If the secular vision of the world is that we're born into a materialistic universe without purpose or meaning, as biologist Richard Dawkins believes and writes, then it means when we die, we rot, and eventually no one will remember anything we've done or fought for. There is no guarantee that the work you do today for justice will continue. In fact, why bother with justice if at the end there is nothing? Nothing we do will make any lasting difference. Life is ultimately meaningless apart from the meaning we create while we're alive. There is actually no moral imperative that's binding on all people to pursue justice if at the end there is nothing. It's just your personal preference. That's number one. Here's number two. The day of the Lord, the day of salvation will be unexpected. Okay, so look at verse one and two with me. When it comes to times and dates, it will come like a thief in the night. It will be unexpected. Look at verse 3 with me. It will come suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. It will be unexpected. You can't predict when a thief's going to break into your home. Well, you know, the pregnant mom's in the room. You can't predict when baby will come. Okay, you have a rough estimate. Well, the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus will be unexpected. But there's a third thing. It shouldn't be a surprise for Christians, okay? The return of Jesus shouldn't catch us off guard as Christians. Look at verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. In fact, Christian people are supposed to be people whose present lives are shaped by the past and the future. And if your life is shaped by the past and the future, the coming of Jesus is not a surprise. It shouldn't catch you off guard. We look back at the saving uh, work of Jesus because it empowers Christian living today. Right? We anchor and we live in response to grace, but we anticipate the future because we live with a posture of hope, knowing that Jesus will come back to repair and restore and reverse all the brokenness in our lives and our world. And so we remember the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we proclaim in the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26, we proclaim... The Lord's death, we look at the past, until he comes, we anticipate the future. He died, he rose, he will come again, is the overarching lens by which Christian people are called to live. It's the posture of the Christian life. Number four, Christian people are to live with faith, love, and hope, expecting Jesus to return in the now. Look at verse five to verse eight. See what Paul says? We're to live as men and women who are awake and not asleep. 
Right? To be asleep is to be ignorant of Jesus' coming. We're children of the day, children of the light, who know and are expecting Christ to return. And so look at verse 5. <clears throat> you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, because what do you do at night? You sleep. Or, so then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. But notice, those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And so, the contrast Paul draws is, People who are awake and people who are asleep. People who are sober and people who are drunk. What does it mean to live soberly? Well, the idea is to be alert. Children of the day. Versus being drunk, intoxicated uh, with things in our lives. And so, the contrast is between being sober and alert and aware, knowing what's happening and not knowing what's happening. One sees clearly, the other one does not. The other is ignorant. One is watchful, the other one is clueless. One is awake, one is asleep. If there is an end game, if there is a return of the king, if there is a day of the Lord, then life in the present can never be the same. Right? I don't know whether you realize this, but your vision of the future always shapes your present reality. Uh, let me show you how that worked in the world of the, old, in the, the, world of the New Testament. Okay? In the world of the New Testament, there were two groups of people. And I suspect, uh, if you looked at culture and society, most people would fall into one of these two groups. You had the Epicureans and you had the Stoics. Okay? And so, the Epicureans were, were, were people who adopted what we call a hedonistic lifestyle. Okay? Uh, basically, live life to the max while you can. Maximize pleasure in your life, minimize pain. Why? Because of their view of the future. The Epicureans believed that you were born into a world of chance. You know, like the secular worldview today, the universe is random. There's no rhyme or reason why bad things happen. You're born, you live, and then you die. There's nothing beyond death. There is no judgment, no calling to account. If that's the future to come, if that's the end game, then in the present, the Epicurean says, let us eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and enjoy life was the mantra of the Epicurean. Uh, Our vision of the future, like I said, always shapes the way we live in the present. And many people live like that today. Okay, So that's the Epicurean. But there was a second group of people called the Stoics. Okay, Uh, The Stoics, I think, right, like Asian people, they took a different approach to life. The Stoics believed the future was uncertain, so you had to seize the day. Carpe diem was their mantra in life. Uh, the Stoic philosopher Seneca, uh, in one of his uh, writings on the shortness of life, he writes, the whole future lies in uncertainty. The future is uncertain. So we must live immediately. Carpe diem, seize the day. Because the future is uncertain, you must learn to take control of your life. You must seize the day to give your life meaning and purpose. You must be ambitious, right? You must work hard. Because if not, fate determines your future. You must act now to be self-sufficient. You must take opportunity today so that you have wealth in the future or fate will decide for you. And so, again, you know, if the future is uncertain, if the end game is unknown, then in the present, let's seize the opportunity. Let's create meaning and purpose in our lives. Carpe diem was a mantra of the Stoic. Our vision of the future always shapes our present reality. And many people live like that as well because they think they will miss out. Now, Paul says, if we know that there is an end game, 
If there is a return of the king who has saved us, who's going to repair and reverse and restore everything broken in our lives and our world, if there is a coming day of salvation and justice, where good will triumph over evil, where wrongs are going to be made right, where suffering will end, where peace and justice will reign, then it's got to affect the way we live, right? Well, it means we don't have to live putting ourselves first, maximizing our pleasure, because there are better days coming. It means we don't have to think that unless we seize the opportunities in front of us, we're going to miss out, because there are better days coming. It means we don't have to face loss and suffering with despair, because we know there are better days coming. It means we can give ourselves to, to fighting justice, you know, fighting for justice for the oppressed, knowing that there will be justice coming. It means we can be generous, sharing our resources with those in need because we know that there will be a day of restoration. It means we can work for change to make the world a better place because we know it will be repaired one day. You see, your vision of the future shapes the way you live today, what you value, what you pursue. So for the Christian, look at verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Let us not be ignorant about the future. Let us not be unaware about the future. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope and the hope of salvation as a helmet. See it there? Look at verse 8. Paul is actually repeating what he said in chapter 1, verse 3. As you've put on faith, love, and hope, keep doing it. That's what he's saying. That's how he ends the letter, right? He says, knowing that there is a day of salvation and justice, knowing that Jesus will come, put on faith, love, and hope. Let your faith in Jesus guard your heart. Keep walking in obedience to his word. Live by his promises. Let the love you've experienced in the gospel guard your heart. Let it shape the way you love your church community. No, not living for self, but for others. Let the, let the love of the gospel, let the hope of the gospel guard your mind, right? As you face everything that life throws at you. Let the hope of the gospel guard your mind from worldliness, let the hope of the gospel guard your mind from suffering. Let the hope of the gospel inform your pain. Why? Because God has saved you for eternity. That is your destiny, your future. Right? Verse 9, verse 10. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's your future, better days. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. That's your future. See, Paul's purpose, verse 11, again, is for us to encourage and build each other up with these truths. Jesus is coming back. It'll be unexpected for those who don't know him, but it shouldn't be a surprise for us. And when he comes, he'll bring about our final salvation and justice. He'll repair, reverse, and restore brokenness in our lives and our world. And because we belong to him, Today, we must put on faith, love, and hope. Let me draw some points of application for us. Two points of application is there in your outline. Some of you, I know that some of you have experienced death in your life. But most of you, majority in this room, are far too young to have experienced it. Certainly not the death of your peers here at Grace Point. And death is always both a shock and unexpected. It is. 
Which is why passages like these are here to prepare us for it. Okay? No one ever plans for their death, by the way. It's always unexpected. You know, one of the things, uh, one of the things I most regretted 10 years into ministry at Grace Point was that I never taught my people how to face or to deal with death. And so here's the thing, right? When we planted Grace Point, you know, we planted with 30 university students, uh, young workers actually in first year out as well. So it's just a young church, right? And so death is not exactly the main thing you think of as a pastor, right? Because they're all either at uni or their first, second year out. Uh, less than 10 years in, uh, Ben, who started Grace Point with us, he was part of my planting team, uh, he was diagnosed with stomach cancer. He, he actually wasn't much older than many of you here. Um, married, two kids under three. Uh, it was terminal. Uh, and over the six months, I remember visiting him in hospital every two or three days. So every two, three days I'd go. And so one of the things I realized, my 10 years of ministry at Grace Point, my first 10 years, my biggest regret was that I had taught my people the gospel, the saving work of Jesus for their sin. But I never prepared the church for death. I had never taught them the hope of heaven. I had never taught them how to grieve with hope. How to live beyond present suffering and death because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so you notice Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26, right? He says, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look back the death of Jesus for sin. He saved us from the ultimate suffering. And we live in the hope of the coming of Jesus. So we look back, but we look forward as well to the return of the King. When he repairs, reverses, and restores brokenness in our lives and brokenness in our world. That's the posture of the Christian life. That's what it means to live under the rule of the gospel. We look back at the past, but we live in anticipation of future hope. And so you've got to understand that death will eventually come. It will eventually come. Um, at this stage of life, most of the um, functions you go to are what? Weddings. Have you noticed that? I have older uh, friends. I have older pastor friends as well. And so you notice that when I look at your Facebook feed, I see lots of weddings. When I see their Facebook feeds, I see lots of funerals that they attend. That will be your journey. Death will eventually come. Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Grieve with hope. Death is not the end for those who have died trusting Jesus. Death is temporary because Jesus rose over death. They will rise again. So will you. And when Jesus returns, we will be together again. So church, remind yourselves of these truths. Remind each other of these truths. Encourage each other with these truths. Prepare your hearts for death. And keep anchoring here. Here's number two. The Christian life isn't just live looking back at the work of Jesus at the cross, right? It's also a life that looks forward to his coming. We often remind each other of the gospel, the death of Jesus for us. But the gospel is only good news because the one who saves is coming back to repair, restore, and reverse all the brokenness in our lives and our world. That's why Paul says encourage and build each other up by looking forward to what's coming. 
And so I want to say this, right? Whatever pain or suffering that you're going through today will be healed one day. The unfairness and injustice you've experienced will be called to account one day. Your concern for justice and mercy, the plight of the oppressed, the rights of the weak and the vulnerable, the needs of the poor, your investment in that is not a waste of time. There will be a day of salvation and justice. So much of your vision of the future actually shapes the way you live in the present. What you choose to value, how you cope with pain and adversity and suffering. If at the end there is nothing, no repair, no reversal, no restoration of broken in our lives and our world, if life, if this life is all there is, why bother loving others? Why care for justice and compassion for the weak? If at the end there is nothing, if that's the end game, then the best thing you can do right now after church is not come back, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. If the future is unknown, if at the end there is nothing good or bad or meaningful, and if this life is all there is, then why not just seize the day, grab all you can, make the most of life to fulfill your personal ambitions. And that's one way to live as well. But if the future is known, if the end game is that there is a day where the one who has saved you is coming to repair and reverse and restore all things, then this life is not all there is. I don't have to live for myself, do I? I don't have to be afraid of losing stuff in my life. I don't have to live holding on so tightly to things. I don't have to live grabbing at things, thinking that I might miss out. I'll give myself to making the world a better place. I'll give myself to making people's lives a better place because it's moving towards a day where justice and mercy and love and good will triumph and prevail. Paul says, encourage each other with these truths. Remind each other of these truths. And put on faith, love, and hope. J.I. Packer, in his book that I've quoted many times before, he says, this is what should shape us as Christians. And it's what we need to practice, you know. He says, this is the Christian secret of a Christian life and a God-honoring life. Looking back, but also looking forward. And Packer actually says, in his book, Knowing God, we need to learn to say it over and over to ourselves, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait by the bus or train, anytime your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it all utterly and completely true. I would add to it, not just say it to yourself over and over again, say it to each other again and again. And he writes, remind yourselves, I'm a child of God. He saved you. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day closer. My savior is my brother. And every Christian is my brother too. So encourage them. Each day. Remind yourselves of these truths. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day closer. My savior is my brother. And every Christian is my brother or sister as well. Encourage them. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we come to you and we want to ask this Lord's Day that you help us to be a people who are sober. Help us live as children of the light. 
Help us live as children of hope and not despair. We thank you for the hope of the gospel, that the one who died for our sins is risen and will come again. Prepare us for death, not just our death, but the death of people we love here in our church community. Help us encourage each other with these words that you died, you rose, and that you'll come again. And help us live our lives in the present as sons and daughters and brothers and sisters who will encourage each other with the hope of your return so that we might be a people today who put on faith, love, and hope. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.